0: Welcome to The Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hi, everybody! Welcome back to Forecasting Impact. It's Maddie here with a new episode and a new guest. And Sherry,
1: yeah, hi, everyone. It's Sherry. I'm back, and I'm so looking forward to our guest today, who is on that crossroads between practice and academia, and that's what interests me so much. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation.
0: Yes, we have today Mike Gilliland. I'm going to introduce him and then we we'll start off our conversation with him. Michael Leland is a Product Marketing Manager at SAS. He's a member of the Board of Directors of the International Institute of Forecasters and Associate editor of Foresight, the International Journal of Applied Forecasting. He has authored and co-authored several books in business forecasting domain, and he is the recipient of Lifetime Achievement Award from the Institute of Business Forecasting and Planning. I'm really excited to have you here in podcast, Mike. Welcome to Forecasting Impact.
2: Great. Thank you, Marty and Sherry. Great to be here.
0: I'm going to start off our conversation to get to know you a little bit more. I'm sure our audiences want to know. Mike, you have been in um, International Institute of Forecasters for a long time and in business forecasting domain for a long time. Tell us, how did you start your career and how did you end up in your current position? Yeah, my career... In forecasting,
2: started I think kind of randomly, like some of the other guests that you've had out here. I was an uh, undergrad, majored in philosophy, uh, but I'd taken a lot of math all along. In grad school, I also did a master's degree in philosophy, and when I wanted to start getting looking for a job, I knew I had to have, I guess, a, another credential out there to maybe make myself more legitimate in a, in a business type job. So. I was at Johns Hopkins University. I stuck around an extra year and did a master's degree and essentially it was a master of science in engineering, essentially in applied math. There I got my first exposure to operations research and I really liked that idea of, you know, efficiency and optimization. And so I actually started my career as an operations research analyst at Oscar Mayer Foods. And there just by again kind of just by chance uh, met a gentleman named Hal Meyer, who was the great-grandson of Oscar Meyer's founder. And they were interested in doing some forecasting, which I knew nothing about. and you know, Certainly had, had, had no classes in, no experiences in. They were at that time using a four-week moving average to forecast demand and wanted to see if we could do any better. So I got assigned to the project, and that was really the, the start of the career. I didn't know, I had no formal training. I wasn't aware of any of the literature or anything like that and happened to start using what I now know is like a seasonal random walk. Uh, We had very low growth, generally very low volatility in our demand patterns, but uh, three large spikes during the year, the, the U.S. summer holidays, Memorial Day, Fourth of July and Labor Day. And so a seasonal random walk tended to work pretty well for that kind of thing. At that point, eventually the job just kind of evolved into a full-time, eventually a a forecasting manager position was created, something that never existed before. And I I actually worked at Oscar Mayer for about 11 years. And then at that point, always held forecasting jobs either in consulting or as a software vendor or actually doing industry forecasting. So again there was no there was no preset plan
1: that does seem to be the main team uh, with all our guests how did you end <laughs> up in forecasting oh by accident <laughs> so how did you get into contact with the IIF how did you get involved there
2: well I, you know this my career started in 1985 at Oscar Meyer and it really wasn't until you know around the the new millennium that I even became aware that there's literature out there. There's other people doing forecasting and there's there's a whole body of, so I was just kind of wandering around by myself for about 15 years. At that time, I, a colleague of mine, I uh, happened to point out Institute of Business Forecasting, which is kind of a rival organization and, and focused mainly on practitioners with not really much of an academic presence. And I got engaged with them, started doing some speaking, a little writing there. So that was really my first step into any kind of communal effort uh, and forecasting. As I was searching around for more sources of information, I came across the International Journal of Forecasting, actually got a a subscription to it for a year. But at that time, I just found I was kind of dumbfounded by it. It was so much, you know, econometrics and high-level statistics and so on. I felt, you know, I had some sort of basic statistical competence, but it was dealing with issues that weren't really in what I was facing. In business forecasting. It was mainly dealing with the modeling aspects. And as I had learned in my job at Oscar Mayer, what I came to discover there is that was a very small part of the problem. I came to realize that any decent, reasonably appropriate forecasting model ultimately does about the same when you throw some data at it. If it's in a reasonably appropriate model, There's not a big difference, and it's not like there's a magic formula out there that suddenly gives you these perfect forecasts. It all kind of boils down to the people process type issues, the political issues within the organization. So back to your question, I reengaged with IIF after joining SAS in 2004. I went to the San Antonio IIF. I was actually kind of skeptical going there. You know, is this going to be a waste of my time? You know, I, I'm not going to understand most of the talks, and they're not going to be really highly relevant to the kind of issues that I'm dealing with. And yet, there for the I really met it was just eye opening and really a wonderful experience. Meeting people who actually were very interested in these kind of problems and eager to talk to me about my experience in the business world, who were actually you know interest in the issues of politics and judgment and so on. And actually, you know, it's kind of exciting to me because they were eager to talk to me from my years of experience in business forecasting for me. And also around that time, I guess, 2005, 2006 was when Foresight started being published by IJF. And that really became my favorite, favorite journal because it was taking, you know, a more rigorous approach to the issues and publishing them in a very accessible way to someone like me who wasn't a PhD in statistics and dealing with kind of issues I was facing in in my role.
0: Yeah. Where do you see that at the moment, like the differences between the uh, Business Forecasting Board and what we see in academia? There's still somewhat
2: of a gap, and I think there's a much more recognition now how important it is to, you know, to cross that gap and get it together. You know, it's natural. People who are very good statisticians, econometricians, and so on, and they have problems they're interested in dealing with and making progress on those. And we do see progress, I mean, exemplified things like the M competitions, as we're starting to see, you know, complex methods, machine learning methods, and so on, starting to do better than the traditional methods. So I don't mean to downplay Now, I understand the interest in that and the potential value there of increasing, you know, when you need that last little bit of percentage point of of accuracy out there, those are areas that merit research. And obviously, there's a lot of people doing that and contributing important things there. But when you get down to a, a business environment, it often doesn't matter what the statistics say. It doesn't matter if you have the best possible model that's giving you the most accurate forecast. If that's not a number that management likes, they're going to change it. They're not going to use it. They're going to ignore it. And if it's not something that can be easily explained to them you know, why this is right, why this is the best, and it's got a, a small degree of uncertainty so they can really rely on it, they're going to be very skeptical about using it. The issue of kind of going off a little editorial here at this point, but it really gets down to a willingness to accept that the world is highly uncertain. You know, we're not gods here. We cannot, we shouldn't commit the the sin or whatever of hubris as we see in the old Greek tragedies that, you know, I read 40 years ago. We're crazy to think we can expect highly accurate forecasts on much of the things we deal with in the world. And so people tend to just reject forecasting because it can't give you these highly accurate numbers just because the world isn't like that. You know, there's randomness, there's volatility, there's these things out there, these unforeseen future events. And until uh, practitioners out there accept this, it's going to be hard for them to really care about what's the latest model, the latest, greatest model, because they're not going to want to deal with it anyway.
1: So it seems like research is going the way, and you wrote a book about that, about AI and uh, machine learning. And I was just wondering how you, I haven't read it yet, how you discuss that there? Because I hear this juxtaposition between, you know, you have this ever developing complex models versus how do we get people to even accept the simple ones and to work with, you know, with the statistical models themselves.
2: Yeah, that book which I co-edited with Len Tashman and my SAS colleague, Udo Slavo, is a compilation of the last five years of literature where we've really seen this emergence of AI and machine learning, I think starting to get turned to time series issues. And then of course the M4 competition and the two winners really brought attention to this. And then M5, of course, really being dominated by the machine learning methods. What we try to do is take a measured, you know, even a critical approach, not get on the bandwagon. There's so much out there that's just rah-rah cheerleaders jumping on the bandwagon, the latest, greatest thing, and thinking this is the cure for all your problems. But I've been around enough (laughs) to know this happens every few years, and there's something new, and there's usually some contribution that can be made by the new direction but it's probably not going to cure all our problems, especially when it comes to the problem of forecasting, which is so inherently uncertain to begin with. So what we've tried to do is is gather a lot of the recent literature to just give people really, you know, try to get both sides of the issue, advocation and people who are a little more measured and and critical and just pointing out, hey, let's see how this this goes. We're seeing some potential here, but let's not just you know be realistic this is this is not solving our problem overnight
1: do you have any ideas or a forecast huh, let's say about how realistic it is to introduce machine learning into companies
2: yeah we've i think the large thing from a software side is the automation of modeling and uh, issues in a lot of companies you know you get a, you know retail is a prime example you're talking about tens of thousands or even millions of forecasts you need to create. So the issue is not so much as, you know, get this building up this perfect model for one thing you need to forecast. You've got to be able to do this on a massive scale. So a lot of our R and D is focused on at SAS. A lot of our R and D is focused on, you know, the automation issue and how to scale you know, through parallelization and that sort of thing, how to scale up to these very, you know, large-scale problems. Definitely incorporating more. We've, you know, in recent releases, adding this, you know, option, neural network options and so on, providing the flexibility now to work with open source because it's crazy to try to deny that there's open source out there and there's all these... New advances. In fact, the newest advances are almost typically coming in open source because it's, you know, first in public comes up with a new method, they publish it, they publish the open source to go with it. Commercial software is always going to be behind that because it just takes time to build it out in commercial software. And also, it's good to let new methods kind of season a little bit to make sure that they really get them past the hype stage and make sure they're actually making advances. So I definitely see SaaS continuing to add the machine learning and AI stuff that's not already there and available, and tons of stuff is through both our forecasting and our machine learning software.
1: Yeah, well, one important factor, of course, is, and you've touched upon it before, is judgment and judgmental adjustment, as in people can't leave well enough alone and they try to fiddle around with the forecasts. At least that's what that's what we see in uh, in data sets. I was just wondering, is that something that you encounter maybe in your role at SAS that people still feel the need to provide their input to have that adjustment opportunity at the end of the forecasting process?
2: Yeah, that's there, I think, among pretty much all of our customers. I think you know pretty much every business out there. Managers want to be able to tweak a number that they don't like, that they don't believe or whatever for any reason. So our software, and I think most other software allows that, gives you that that placeholder where you can make that adjustment to this. I think that's always going to be there. The key is uh, bringing to people's attention, making sure they don't just assume that's actually improving the number. That's kind of the big problem is everybody, Oh, I touch it. I'm, 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 I'm you know, putting effort into it, I'm making it better. And as we all know from tons of research out there and tons of data, that isn't always the case. And we know certain things, I think, that like very small adjustments to me are a complete waste of time. Who cares? Even if you're directionally correct, which isn't a guarantee, but even if you're directionally correct on a small adjustment, is it going to change any decision or action that the company makes? If it doesn't, then it's a complete waste of time anyway. You haven't changed anything. Forecasting itself is doesn't do anything. It's just used to help improve decisions. And I think that's one of the early realizations I came to at Oscar Mayer, getting a chance to dig around. The luxury of being at a company and having access to all that data and being able to dig around on my own and kind of discover things on my own. In at that point, realizing okay, we override like half of our forecasts. And yet 60% of those adjustments just made the forecast worse. So that was maybe one of my first real important realizations. And thankfully, I had that option of working in industry and to kind of come across it on my own. I think somehow it kind of sticks a little better and it really kind of kicks you hard when you kind of come across that in 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 your own data that you're analyzing you know not just someone telling you that in a book or an article or in a speech
1: yeah you talk about small adjustments being well not very useful but there's also a danger in those adjustments that do have a big effect but are made because of the wrong reasons i mean there's often positive adjustments out of sheer optimism for political reasons is one of the things you mentioned yeah, and people just confusing maybe forecasts with decisions or with targets.
2: Yeah, that's. I mean, for example, the, the Files and Goodwin study from 2007. I guess it was it's, in foresight. Uh, recently, was named to the Hall of Fame. That was a very, you know, often cited study showing out of the dangers of. Bringing up those issues of positive positive, you know, overly optimistic positive mm-hmm. adjustments and often not adding value and negative adjustments. You know, you really have to be a brave soul to go into management and bring a forecast down. You're not going to like to see it. So you better have a pretty good reason to, to make a large uh, adjustment like that. So, you know, we, we there's a lot of reasons you know, I can speculate on of why it happens one way or another, but it is, it's really a fundamental issue out there in, in business forecasting.
0: I want to maybe dig a little bit into that, that. What's your role actually in SaaS? Um uh, Some of our audiences probably would be interested to see, well, what do you do there? And what can they do if they want to go to SAS as a forecaster? My job is, I'm actually in the marketing department. I've
2: been in this role for a number of years. So I deal with kind of our outward messaging, uh, positioning, communication to customers. I do... A blog. I do, you know, some articles now and then. uh, Do these book, put together books and so on. When there's the opportunity to speak to customers, whenever I can. Often it's just at a conference, but now and then I'll get invited out to to visit a customer, and that's always really exciting to me and a great learning experience to me to to see what's going on out there. I also, in addition, but forecasting is really what I love doing, and those are the kind of things I love in the job. So about half the job, I get to do things I really love doing, which is great. The other half of the time is stuff I'm not all that keen on. Uh, I've got a number of other products I do the marketing for, and that's things like you know maintain uh, and keep the web pages up to date, and you can do a white paper now and then, kind of the mundane marketing task, which I have absolutely no formal background in and uh, very limited interest in, honestly speaking. But yeah. I figure, if, you know, half the job, I can do something that's really fun and I can enjoy. Well, I can suffer through the other half. <laughs> <laughs> There's the people about SaaS. SaaS is an absolutely fabulous company to work for. I've been there now 16 years or something. It's great. I've been a SaaS customer since 1985. So I've used SaaS and I've written code in SaaS since long before probably you two have been born and most of the people I work with now have <laughs> And I love SAS as a programming language, although I don't really do much programming anymore. I'm pretty rusty at it. It's just been wonderful and a a great experience. that has been supportive of me and my participation in conferences and initially the IBF and then over these last, you know, dozen years or so in IIF and being supportive on my role there, my role on the board there and uh, doing the editing and other, I'm treasurer of IIF now. So, you know, there's a lot of time, volunteer time, that goes into that, and sas has been very supportive.
1: Of yeah, you. that's great that they're supportive of that, and and the IIF sounds like they roped you in <laughs> as well.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, l- listening to George the, your, your most recent broadcast yeah.
1: talk, you know, when
2: he joined the board, he was advised the one thing you don't do is become the treasurer. He never. When he handed the treasurer off to me, he didn't give me that advice. Obviously. But uh, it's, I actually kind of enjoy it. Thankfully, we're in a very strong financial position, so I don't have any worries <laughs> and headaches about us going under. And it's really more of a, an opportunity to see where can we take, you know, our used to our advantages financial stability in terms of, you know, maintaining or lowering costs to members and providing additional benefits to members in doing things. You know, the, we provide foresight, we provide the IJF, we provide these conferences. Members have been able to go free to the virtual conferences, and then opportunities like new things we've done. This is the forecasting summer school, the uh, democratizing forecasting that uh, Bachman from Cardiff has been running, although that's kind of been shut down the last two years with COVID. Great things that we can do in the organization, and so uh, if I have to suffer through treasurer for you know a couple of couple of years, that's that's fine. It's no problem. <laughs>
1: yes and of course there are uh, new projects like this podcast that is supported by the IIF as well so uh, we're here now thanks to the IIF
2: we are eager for for good ideas and things like this that help provide you know a really critical education to people not the raw raw you know not the typical marketing Mm -hmm. peer leading kind of stuff bring realistic expectations of what forecasting do, show people how can we do it, how can we best do it, you know, with a tempered understanding and and realization of, of the limits. And I think one other thing is I like to bring up is, you know, you can't solve all your business, you can't always solve all your business problems with forecasting. So you also have to be open to knowing the limits of forecasting, being able to recognize the limits, and then find other ways to address business problems. When forecasting alone isn't going to solve it. If your job is to forecast heads or tails and the toss of a fair coin every day, no matter how much effort you put into it, you're only going to be right 50% of the time. (laughs) That's just the nature of what you're trying to forecast. And it's not quite as extreme as that in real life, but people need to realize, you know, it's still important to realize there are limits on what you're going to achieve. And if you can't get the accuracy you feel you need to run your business, you've got to be open to other ideas. I'm kind of diverging here a little bit but you know one of them is if you can't forecast your demand accuracy can you make that demand more forecastable mm-hmm. An organization has typically has a lot of control over how the shape of the demand the volatility of their demand are they doing everyday low pricing and things tend to be more stable versus a lot of high low pricing and promotional activity where you're dry, you're purposely driving spikes that are going to be more difficult to forecast accurately. So a solution, if your demand is so volatile that you can't forecast it very well, maybe you can reconsider some of these motivational demand motivation tactics that you're using and find a way to motivate growth in your sales, but in a more stable, smoother, and more predictable manner that's ultimately going to be more profitable to
0: you. That's true. In, when we're talking about the, the, the forecasting in business, those are the issues that will come to mind. What type of other issues we see in business forecasting?
2: Yeah, definitely. You've got to consider the motivation of anyone providing a forecast to you or reviewing and overriding a forecast. A typical business scenario, the process is you'll have a statistically generated forecast coming out of your software. You may have a demand planner or forecast analyst who does an initial adjustment to that forecast, and then it may go into a more elaborate, collaborative consensus type process where different managers get involved, and and everybody likes to think they're they're adding value that they're they've got some little piece of wisdom that's going to make it better, but often it is just their a personal agenda. Someone may have uh, you know want to drive this target a stretch target to motivate people to hit. Other people want to be conservative. Maybe they they really want to focus on keeping low inventories, so they lower the forecast, so you'll keep less inventory, even though this may risk order fill rates, you know, customer service levels, and get you unhappy customers. So everybody has their own motivation. I don't know if there's anyone. I used to think supply chain were the only people you could trust because they got yelled at for too much inventory, and they got yelled at for not filling orders. But I'm not even so certain now that, that we can trust anybody in, in the process for giving us a straight answer.
1: Well, that's a little bit depressing. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, unfortunately, it is just something that we need to work on. And that's one of the
2: reasons I've been such a strong advocate of forecast value added because that forces you to go in and make those step-by-step comparisons. You know, what would a naive forecast have done is the most basic comparison. What did your statistical model to? What did the analyst override? What did the marketing person override? What was your final consensus forecast? And did it, uh, the general manager or CEO make a final executive adjustment to it? Until you measure those and track them, you don't know if you're, you're adding value by all this effort. I mean, obviously we're spending lots of management time and spending a lot of resources doing this, but until you go in
0: and, and measure that, you ultimately don't know. We are enjoying the conversation. There's a lot in business forecasting that we can discuss there. (laughs) But we're going to move on our conversation to the last part where we end up our questions with two quick questions. What is your favorite forecasting uh, method? I would say naive one.
2: So many time series things you forecast can't really be improved at all or much at all from naive one. So mm-hmm. that's always the starting point, the no change model for any kind of forecasting. When you look at it, it's like Steve Morlidge is, you know, he, he won a hall of fame for a series of articles on quality, quality of forecasting. And one of the things he found in some of his studies, is like, you know, half the forecasts that the businesses are using in these study companies were less accurate than the, the naive that's one. Nice. That shows you there's a fundamental problem in real life forecasting out there that if half the time we're doing worse than this, that's, that's an issue.
0: Long answer to a short question. No, excellent. And the second question, you have written quite a few papers and also uh, several books, and obviously you have uh, read a lot of them. (laughs) What's your favorite forecasting book and paper? We want to know both. Okay. Well,
2: I'll start with the papers. And as I just mentioned, those Steve Morlidge series of five papers published in Foresight and Foresight Quality are big favorites of mine. But I'm going to mention two others. One is 2009 from Macrodakis and Taleb. They did a special issue in IJF on forecasting planning under conditions of great uncertainty. So their article, you know, living in a world of low levels of predictability, fantastic that when that came out i did a blog about it saying this is my favorite article of all time at that time i still think it's very important if people have not seen it they should look at it because you know they're really kind of kicking people in the teeth and telling them the world is you've got to redeal with this reality that the world is uncertain and you can't have these high expectations for highly accurate forecasts and people do need to be kicked in the teeth sometime to get this through their head that this is the reality they've got to deal with. One other thing, and this is also by Macrodakis, Rob Heinman, and Fotios Petropoulos, was in the M four special issue of IJF on forecasting in social settings: the state of the art. Now, honestly, I didn't read that article immediately when they were talking about forecasting in social settings. I, I had no idea what they were, t- you know, what that was about. It was like you're in a party or something? How you talk about forecasting? And- what was it? When I finally read that, you know, like a month later, it's like, this is fantastic. And I liked it so much. And thankfully, uh, we got permission to uh, open access. We published it as the opening of the new business forecasting collection, uh, the the AI and emerging thing. That is the opening standalone chapter, uh, because we thought that was so important, so valuable from three of the absolutely top people in the field. And wanted to get as much attention as possible to that. So, those are a couple of articles. Books, again, but I, I think most of your people have violated this rule about naming it to one. So, I'm going to list a couple of favorites here. Uh, going back, you know, the classic forecasting methods and applications by Macrodacus Wheelwright and, and Rob Heinemann. Also, very much enjoyed hearing Rob's podcast where he described how he got engaged with those two guys as a very young man, as a very young statistician, how he actually got engaged with them and became the, the third author on the third edition of that book back in 1998. So thank you for bringing that story to me through that podcast. I really <laughs> enjoyed Another one that's, I don't think, noticed or I don't know how aware of it is in the forecasting community is a book called Sales Forecasting, A New Approach by Tom Wallace, who recently passed away, and Bob Stahl. It was published, uh, used in the APICS, the Production Inventory Control Society. So it's it doesn't at all deal with statistical models or anything like that, but it very much deals with just getting, you know, saying the forecast, you just need to get it in the ballpark, something that you can use to make better decisions with. So I think that's got a very important message. And it's it's probably not, uh, you know, that, that much recognition within the, the formal forecasting community. Another more recent one, Demand Forecasting for Managers by Stephen Colossa and M.O. Simpson. Short book, yep. great, easy read. I, I think it's a terrific book by a couple of you know, really important contributors in the field. And then finally, a book called Understanding Variation by Donald Wheeler. Not a forecasting book at all. It's more about uh, you know, by a, from a guru in process control field. And it's really just a takedown of management reporting in general and the lack of recognition for uncertainty and randomness and that sort of thing. So although it's not directly a forecasting book, I think it's very keen for forecasters to be aware of the, that book. And it's got a lot of useful thoughts for the forecaster.
0: Amazing. So
2: this yeah, good
1: list
0: a... to, to look
1: at. Those are very interesting suggestions. My, my to-read pile really yeah. keeps on growing every month. Well, I think there's so much we can learn by
2: other fields. And actually, I think being a philosophy major, sometimes people go, why the hell did you measure in that, major in that? What good is that ever going to do? But it kind of gave you more general skills of analysis and criticism and so on. And I think that in itself is very valuable that you can apply it to whatever field. In this case, you know, from the process control, statistical process control standpoint, there's things I think are very applicable to forecasting.
0: Definitely, in my to-do list, yeah, to the list to read that book for sure. Um, thank you so much, Mike. It's been amazing to have you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us and with our audiences. Uh, I truly enjoyed our conversation, and um, I hope uh, we can have you one more time uh, at least and, and our podcast in the future and uh, yeah. Get to see you sometime again um, in person, maybe next ISF. Next year, please, I hope.
1: Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's great that we have the opportunity to do the virtual one, but I am also really looking forward to having a live ISF again. Yeah. Uh, and as you can hear, you are a great guest because Madi is already trying to rope you in for a next session. So,
2: <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I've got some more bullet points. I'm
0: glad to go through it anytime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, we'll have you again in year. That would be great. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And uh, yeah, uh, see you next time. Thank you both. Wonderful.
2: Good
0: yeah. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.